Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a podcast for fans of Arkham Horror, the card game. We're sometimes fortnightly, we're sometimes monthly. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... It's me, Peter. Hello, Frank. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? Doing great. Doing really, really well. Enjoying spooky season. Officially officially well into spooky season now, halfway through October. Am I right in thinking you went and saw a spooky movie? <laughs> yeah, I did. Well, sort of. I went to see the latest Halloween film. I'm a Halloween franchise super fan, so mm-hmm. I took the opportunity to see the latest one at the cinema. Yeah, th- that film will be divisive. I think some people will really like it, and some people are going to detest it. And I know okay. that because my partner saw it, and she hated it. <laughs> I saw it, <laughs> and I loved it. <laughs> right, there you go. You've got a sample size of two, and, and you've got a one thumbs up and one thumbs down. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> well, it's probably two thumbs up and two thumbs down between between us. It's either 10 out of 10 or 0 out of 10. Yes. Oh, I, but I, I, like, I like this time of year. That I went for an early Sunday morning run earlier. Just mm-hmm. admired the, the trees turning and the leaves on the path. Mm, yeah, it's nice. It's beautiful at the moment, and and you're well, because you're out in the countryside now more so exactly. than you were. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, how, yeah, yeah. How, how are you finding autumn so far? Maybe people are going to think that I'm really dim, but I didn't realise quite how many acorns oak trees dropped. Wow, that's a that's a hell There's of an opener there. Bits of the woods that I was standing in the woods probably a week ago, and you could just hear this. Crackle, 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 crackle. And it's just acorns falling constantly. Mm-hmm. And underneath oak trees, they're just carpeted. Like, I'm not even exaggerating, carpeted by acorns. Incredible. If I was a little acorn-fed piglet, I would be very plump indeed. I'm not. <laughs> Did, do pigs eat, piglets eat acorns? I think there's a, isn't it a thing that sort of posh restaurants, you know, acorn-fed pork i think that's i mean it could be a pitch i mean i don't i don't really eat meat so no i don't either <laughs> the worst people to comment on this <laughs> the two super aficionados <laughs> to talk way out of there acorn soup you can make an acorn soup yeah. well there acorn you go i mean that, that's the other thing autumn is prime soup season isn't it it is prime soup season i'm You've making got, one tomorrow what, so, what yeah. kind of soup are you making tomorrow we're doing like a parsnip and leek yummy <sighs> veggie goodness one anyway that's not what this episode is about just about to launch into more soup chat there what is this episode about frank (laughs) this episode is going to be so long as well so yeah so what we have coming up in this episode is pretty different from what we normally do there's going to be three different guests on this episode we've already full disclosure recorded those interviews and they're all authors for the forthcoming secrets in scarlet which is an aconite book's Arkham Files short story collection to tie in with the Scarlet Keys campaign expansion. I mean, it, yeah, it doesn't really tie in with the Investigator expansion, does it? Because no, that's just player cards. But no. yeah, with the campaign. But yeah, it, and from speaking to the authors, it ties in pretty directly as well. I hadn't <laughs> yeah. realised yeah. it, it's not just here's some loosely influenced or loosely related stories. Like you are going to the places in the campaign and meeting mm-hmm. some of the people who will appear in the campaign. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. think a couple of the authors said they've like they've seeded in some hints or kind of references to things that happen in the campaign directly into their works. Which is incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Just for it to be so closely interwoven. So as a result, we are presenting these three interviews in order for you. You'll hear our voices as well. There's no preamble when we're introducing them. There does seem to be limits on what they could and couldn't share with us. Yes. They 
do seem to have worked quite closely with FFG in terms of seeing behind the scenes the design of Scarlet Keys, being able to pick which characters they wanted to focus on, things like that. But then also there's certain things I think that they weren't allowed to share with us. So you'll probably hear that in some of the interviews coming up. And of course, the other thing that we've tried to be a bit careful about is not spoiling the stories as well. Yes. So we'll, we do in the interviews mention, well, what's this story about or who's in it? Maybe we go into a bit more detail than that. But we err on the side of not spoiling things. So if you're hoping to hear how good the stories are or not in these interviews, you, you might be disappointed, I guess. Yes, and and we're only talking about three of the nine stories in the book, mm-hmm. in the in the full book. So even if you do get some hints of what's going to happen, um, there's still plenty of unspoiled material in the book for you. Should we say mm-hmm. who we're interviewing? Yes, yeah, good idea. So you'll hear from, first of all, you'll hear from Jason Fisher, who wrote Brother Bound. Then you'll mm-hmm. hear from Josh Reynolds, who wrote The Red and the Black. And finally, we've got Carrie Harris, who wrote Honour Among Thieves. Mm. We range around the world with our settings, yeah. which is great, which fitting, I think, for Scarlet Keys. I feel like, in a way, we're adding to the Scarlet Keys literature with this episode, because you'll maybe be able to glean little details about the coterie and about how it fits together and what we might expect. But nothing is straightforward or just laid out cleanly, which... I like about it. Yeah. <laughs> That's part of the fun. One last thing before the interviews begin. We're interviewing three separate people. We ask them all to record audio at their end, which means that the audio quality will be different across the different interviewees. And I will do my level best to make it sound good. But yeah, please <laughs> give me your patience if, if it's slightly different. Obviously, we can't control for them all having microphones at a standard that we like and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I just wanted to say that up front because I know that the audio is a bit different and hopefully the content is the thing that's going to keep you listening anyway. Peter, anything else we need to say before we start? I'm going to Columbo this bad boy. Just one more thing. <laughs> a very special thank you to Aconite who sent us the book to read. Uh, in PDF format, so we got a chance to read the relevant stories before we started. Mm. Um, so yeah, thank you to them. And also, they were the ones kind of instrumental in setting the interviews up. They had all the contact details for the authors, so they put us all in touch. So yeah, it wouldn't have been possible to do this without them putting everyone in touch. And you know, yeah. just thank you to the authors as well for being receptive and, and getting back to us and allowing us to set these all, all these interviews up. Yeah, absolutely. Really grateful that they could spare the time to talk to us. Okay, on with the show. Synchronized watches. (laughs) (laughs) So this is the first of our three... Oh, I shouldn't say first. It might not be the first. So... (laughs) This will get edited out. This is one of our interviews with one of the authors from Secrets in Scarlet, and we're delighted to be joined by Jason Fisher. Hi, Jason. Oh, hi, Frank. Thanks for having me, uh, gents. Hi, how's it going? Yeah, awesome, awesome. Uh, the magic of podcasting is we've been talking already for about 20 minutes, but um, no, no, we've just got on the call. Uh, <laughs> we just thanks. called you from the ether. <laughs> yes, um, thank you so much for having me on board. Uh, lovely to talk to you, uh, particularly about this new book. It's very exciting and it's great to be a part of it. So yes, happy to, um, yeah, 
uh, talk about the process and, and whatever else uh, you guys need to know. Well, we're really glad to have you here. It's really exciting for us to look at this as well. And as we've said in our intro, we're going to do some questions more specifically about your story. And then we're going to ask you some other more general questions and sort of some gaming questions as well. So maybe we dive in with your story, which is Brother Bound. Yes. Right? Um, yeah. Brother Bound. Absolutely. So it was a really good, uh, really fun story for me to write because I personally, I'm obsessed with Cuba. And it's, it comes from a whole long-winded explanation about another series of books that I wrote where I had to set a zombie story somewhere near Florida and the Bahamas. And I ended up using Cuba as the spot where the zombies are all in. And the, the subtitle of that particular book was called Better Red Than Undead. And it was all like, it's <laughs> uh, a great title, <laughs> co- communist zombies and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was sort of, uh, but the level of research that I did at the time, I had already done a deep dive into Cuba. When I knew I was writing this book, I, I watched and read everything I could get my hands on, you know, motorcycle diaries, all of it. Um, you know, the Buena Vista social club, everything. And it was very interesting to, go okay that is you know sort of post-revolution cuba and this is of course 1920s the whole the whole setting uh you know it's all in Mm -hmm. the 1920s so this is pre-revolution so i had to go even deeper on the deep dive research wise and i loved it i loved it uh and to go right back uh you know we did have some freedom in picking the setting that we were going to work on in, in the pitch and i did put a few pictures forward and this is the one that of mine that got picked was the the cuban setting and i was very glad of it because i had all of that preset knowledge ready to roll um, but the interesting thing was that a big part of my story is set in the sugarcane now the sugarcane mm. is uh uh you know when we look at the cosmic horror side of brother bound it is all to do with a you know without spoiling it too much that there is a particular blood curse bound in the sugar and this you know because sugarcane has got a whole horrible history involving slavery and, and all sorts of stuff and in australia there is also a big sugarcane industry so there's like legit uh motion footage that you can see of a sugarcane gang working the fields in australia and how that was done to the point where i'm watching black and white films of how these people would harvest the sugarcane to get like exactly what it was like a backbreaking way like you know all of us mm-hmm. yeah we we whinge about oh i had to do an excel spreadsheet i've got a little bit of a hair <laughs> it's like no you didn't like work out in the humidity for 10 hours like chopping lifting and oh um <laughs> we've got it pretty easy uh so but yes it was that that is all the stuff that really appealed to me about writing in in cuba and particularly you know playing with well a arkham horror and b this particular setting, the um, um, you know, the the Scarlet Keys mm. stuff, which I have seen behind the scenes, uh, all of the <laughs> draft stuff, which is just brilliant. Because as a fan of the game, uh, you know, I've seen how the game is actually built. Like they've said, okay, as you're developing your story, this is what we're up to. And and as we were writing it, I had to change certain bits because the the game itself changed, that made maybe part of my story a bit redundant. So it was sort of like a live 
process mm. while the game was being developed. We were writing the stories and we had to tweak them accordingly, um, you know, to get everything to come out at the same time. So it was uh, an interesting process as a writer to be involved uh, in this particular Gantt chart of, you know, story and game all coming <laughs> mm. out together. Yeah. But, and I showed you folks this book before, but I'll, um, but I'll show you everyone. I don't know if you're, if you have video as part of your podcast, but uh, oh, we we can see it. <laughs> oh yeah, it's, it's <laughs> that's, cool. that's, that's what counts. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is on Goodreads and Amazon. Um, the cover is beautiful, so yeah, it is. Um, particularly the um the scenario itself in the game. Uh, those of you who enjoy um the Arkham Horror card game, you're going to love it. It is <laughs> uh, yeah, it's wild. It really reminded me a little bit because my introduction into the whole world. I used to be a huge fan of Elder Signs. Uh, the Elder Signs uh, app and, and game. And, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that was sort of my introduction to Arkham Horror and the Arkham Horror card game. And, and there is a scenario in Elder Signs that involves a lot of travel. And this game involves a travel element, which I think mm-hmm. that's, you know, I don't want to give too much away because I know you'll be talking <laughs> to the game designer, but um, it is really good fun. So yeah, it's one of the ones that yeah, even even those of us on the other side of the curtain, I'm I'm getting it. I'm going to have a great time playing it. You know, add it to the add it to the collection of stuff. So yeah, it's uh yeah. Every every time I come home from the game shop, my wife just rolls her eyes. I'm like, it's research. It's important. <laughs> it's, important. it's important that I you know, be across the product. Um, but yeah. The, <laughs> I could, we could definitely, so, so reading the story, we, we've had a chance to read the stories and the, the, the research you've done definitely comes across. It's a very like, there's a kind of tactile uh, sense feeling when, when you're talking about the sugar canes, especially that section of it really feels uh, that the scene is set so well oh, thank from you. The, the, the research you've done. You get also like, like the stickiness and the, 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 the humidity um, of working there really comes across, I think, in the, uh, in, in the story. What was it that first hooked you into Cuba as a setting? Because obviously you must have started looking into it. Was it just that there was that location um, between uh, the Bahamas and Florida, just point on a map, there's Cuba. What kind of things were you looking for in terms of horror that you thought would make good hooks? Um, so, I mean, particularly that this is the post-revolutionary Cuba, of course, that version of it, but it was the fact that of, in my particular setting, which was a zombie story, the, the things that jumped out so much were that a totalitarian government could possibly survive, uh, a dire situation more so than, uh, a free world government where people are running around like headless chooks and, and then the government steps in and is largely ineffective. So it was sort of they, in my particular book, they did have a solution and it was not nice, but they had some horrible things go on uh, to try and survive. And, you know, spoiler alert, everything blows up and, you know, my main character, <laughs> you know, runs away from the island. And um, and and then they, they go to um, uh, the Caymans and Prince Harry gets involved. And I wrote this book before <laughs> Meghan Markle, long before that. But it's a series, so now I'm stuck with this, like, alternative history Prince Harry as a minor <laughs> character. And it's just like, oh. Like, he came in, like, I wrote this thing in 2009, and it was like, yeah, he was still in the military, and, yeah, he was almost like, he cut a heroic figure and all the rest of it, and now it's just, oh. But, yeah, you know, <laughs> if you commit to something, you've got to stick with it. <laughs> But yes, yeah, so it was a whole uh, uh, a whole thing, and yeah, the, it was basically point to a map because that was a whole 
series where they were in England. So it was in a town called Gravesend in Kent was the, you know, the pun drew me there. It was a fortified village. They escaped from there. They go to a place called Corpus Christi in Texas, which is uh, the world's largest helicopter base, like a naval helicopter base. And of course, that whole sort of theater gets involved. And so Cuba was part of that. And so it was a happy accident that there was a Cuban a Cuban element to to this uh, Arkham Horror uh, setting. Um, so yeah, I'd already done all the work. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was just a bit more fun to sort of go, all right, let's flip that and go back in time a little bit. And, um, and you know, particularly where Brother Bound comes in and uh, what I've enjoyed doing so well is the fact that there is this whole sense of the the Cubans themselves are basically an underclass to all of these American figures coming in and Hershey's sets up their own like locomotive. They've got like the one good train in that area. Everything else is all run down and, and stuff. Mm-hmm. And people are getting like slave wages for, you know, horrendous work. And they had the sense of not really owning their own home anyway. So it's all of these, you know, things that led up to the, you know, the revolution, of course. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so it was like not a nice place. And, and, and you know, of course the, the sense of the the overwhelming heat and the humidity and uh, and the fact that they're on a place that has you know had its own indigenous people before all of this uh, and the sense that there is something older something more that's unknown and you then mm-hmm. you start to peel apart into the cosmic horror stuff and um, mm. and where it became very interesting because of course we have to be very very sensitive about how we deal with living cultures and of course there are living cultures in. Cuba even now, uh, particularly the Taino, Taino, I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, and there's another one whose name escapes me. These are uh, uh, living examples of indigenous folk. So I took a very judicious approach of setting something before even them was the way I, I put my my sort of cosmic horror element to that, that, you know, it was known even to these to these guys, and they were like, "This thing is bad. We don't understand it. Let's <laughs> seal it in a cave," uh, kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah, it's so hard not to spoil things. Um, yes, <laughs> yeah, so, I know what you mean because at, at the, the 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 end sequence, I think there's a there's a kind of I'll say a relic that you bring in, which I I absolutely loved the way that was was like quite a horrifying item. Yeah, um, very so interested cool. to see if that pops up in in the game as well. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I won't I won't say any more. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. No, uh, I I will not say either. But yeah, it's uh, yeah the idea, of course, is. It is all about secret societies, uh, unless mm. on the front cover of the book is a secret society, um, and you know they're hunting for stuff. Um, doesn't take much to even just look at the image to be like, okay, the co- the color red seems to be important. The, the color <laughs> the color red is important. There are secrets in Scarlet. Uh, people are hunting for things, and you know one of these items may be in Cuba. Uh, so yeah, it was yeah really good fun. Um, now I mentioned. You, know, you mentioned in some of the questions that you sent me before the interview about the top-level yeah. pitch, and I thought it might be interesting for yourselves and your listeners to understand the process of what writing for oh, yeah. uh, Aconite and, um, uh, you know, to, to do the fantasy flight games stuff and how that worked. Yeah, please, yeah. Was yeah, that yeah, the pitching process ended up vastly different to the end result? Mm-hmm. And this okay. is quite often the way is that, you know, it's a negotiation. That as you go through as a writer and you've got the the source materials, you get all of this juicy stuff that no one's seen yet. 
and the World Bible and all of the stuff that you've signed an NDA and can't disclose. But um, yeah, all of the amazing fun stuff that as writers you just sink your teeth into. And that's what I love about playing in someone else's sandbox. You get to you know, really set yourself for that challenge. Um, so, you know, you, set, you send through a bunch of initial pitch ideas to, to the publisher and mm-hmm. they will say to you, you know, yes, no, we like this one, expand upon it. So the process involved three different rounds of pitching. Okay. Where my initial staff, because of course it is a, without giving too much away, it is a prequel story. It explains mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff in the uh, scenario and the campaign itself. So it is leading into into that. My initial pitch was after the scenario that involves the, uh, the Cuban part of... Um, the Scarlet Keys. So I, I came at it from that way and I was like, okay, so this character is the mature version of the character and all the rest of it. And it was close. So I had the whole, uh, and you know, there was a cane field in my initial pitch, but the idea was, you know, I just, that was the only reference to the sugar cane was that, okay, there's some stuff going on in a cane field and, you know, sort of almost like that um, children of the corn stuff where, you know, big swaying, growing plants are kind of creepy and, yeah, and if yeah, stuff yeah, goes on in the cave. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that was the only sort of element. And, you know, we had, you know, monsters are in the cane and stuff goes on and it was a bit so-so. And so they came back and said, yeah. You know, of the three pitches I sent through, you know, the other two, one of them was in Sydney and I really wanted to play, you know, with some of the original uh, core core setting uh, characters. But um, what did we have there? Agnes Baker. I was going to play with, but you know, one of my favorites. To, I didn't get to use Agnes. It was very oh. unfortunate. Um, and you know, there was another one where I was like, oh, "When the Saudi Sharifs defend 15th century Marrakesh against the attacking Portuguese, powerful sorts." Of, and, and you know, there's all this other stuff that just didn't go ahead. There are so many mm-hmm. stories that never get written, um, but the one that they liked was the Cuban one. So they said, "Yeah, work on that pitch." So I came back with the second pitch. Well, they, they said, "You know, expand on that one." So I expanded the pitch. And then it was a whole thing about, you know, being careful with the, the indigenous peoples of the island. And so it sort of had to be mm-hmm. a bit, tread a bit carefully there. Because, of course, you know, I'm not one of those people. I don't own that culture. So I can't yeah, yeah. Truth, truthfully speak to that culture. Um, you know, it's, yeah, it's just best for me not to. So mm-hmm. we've got, uh, you know, looking at this one, I played around with that same idea a little bit more. And they said, oh, it's not quite right. Uh, how about you do it as a prequel instead? And I was like, mm-hmm. actually, that sounds boss. Let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> so we went we went back in time. We made the character younger and it all started to work. And then we had, um, yeah, we had the pitch locked in and then we got to work and it was fun, really good fun. <laughs> so, yeah, it all, um, yeah, there's a whole level of, because, of course, it's someone's intellectual property. So, yeah, you can't. You know, it's not like me just going, oh, I'm going to write Cthulhu stuff in Cuba. You know, there's a whole intellectual property. It has to fit in with the expectations of the game players mm-hmm. and designers. And there's a whole whole thing that we it has to go into it. So you know, they take so much care in even this short story anthology. There's so much care that goes into coming up with the goods. And I imagine the similar process for every other writer in this book. It would have been lots and lots of work went in. One short story took me almost as long as I normally spend on, like, say, most of the first draft of a, of a novel. Wow. <laughs> you know, I did a, wow. lot, of, okay. uh, a yeah. lot of research and stuff because I was like, I love the game so much. I'm like, I'm really going to do this right. So, yeah, that was, um, yeah, it was wonderful. 
And how much are you hearing from FFG in terms of like, no, you can't use that investigator or yes, we like that idea, but is it is it down at that granular level where they're telling yeah, you it's um so it was, it's, you know agnes you can't do that sorry we want someone else to do agnes is it um it wasn't so much they said no to agnes it was more that the the setting the idea kind of sucked uh mm-hmm. so it was uh <laughs> yeah, i might have been able to have agnes in cuba i don't know but yeah the story had to work so mm-hmm. yeah it was really good so from the word go yeah, the publisher and Fantasy Flight, like Aconite and FFG, they worked together really, you know, hand in glove. They had it down. They were so organized. All of this mm-hmm. stuff was like, you can use these characters. You can't use these. Here's what we're looking at. They were very clear what they wanted. Or right. the other thing was, uh, I had to tone back my gore level. That was the other <laughs> thing. I was okay. over the top with my gore level. And rightfully so, they said, yeah, that's, you know, not going to fly. Because, yeah, I was. Yeah, it was too much. <laughs> but yeah, it was, and again, it was the whole thing. It's like Jaws, it's like Alien, it's like all of that stuff where the more that you see, the less scary it is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the implied threat is scarier than the, you know, the, the visceral thing. So, yeah, you can still be violent and, and scary and all the rest of it. You know, of course, you take the Barbara Cartland method is that you move some of that stuff off screen and you, you, you refer to the <laughs> aftermath where the, where the person is standing with X artifact covered yeah. in blood going, what have I done? For what it's worth, I think that, the, I guess, that end sequence where you might have seen the gore, I think actually what, what what's in there is probably more horrifying than it would have been if you were just carving someone up anyway, um, kind of the implications of that. Yeah, Splatagore, I've never, despite the fact that I tried to get away with it in this thing and got said, you know, don't do the Splatagore. <laughs> but Splatagore generally isn't the best application of horror. You know, of course, a lot of B-grade cinema, Splatagore is exactly what it says on the tin. People love it. Um, but it's not super scary. It's just uh, popcorn fuel, really. It's like, you know, the whole, and this is the thing with Mythos and Cthulhu and and I never know if I'm pronouncing that right. Cthulhu. <laughs> I think it's li- literally un- unpronounceable by human yeah. tongue. So I think whatever you say goes, right? Excellent. <laughs> but, you know, every, everything is meant to be that it is, you know, all of these things that we can't truly understand. And, you know, that's the horrifying bit of, of all that cosmic horror stuff. So mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to, if it's all right with you, I'm going to read the opening line of the story because that might give us a springboard into maybe filling in some of the blanks here about characters. And yeah, there's so much here. So it opens, I do favours for friends, was all Javier would ever say, but Desiderio Delgado Alvarez did not believe his brother. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's the reaction I had as well. Did I write that? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. I love it. I think it's really good. And we get... Brothers straight away, obviously it's Brother Bound is yeah. the title of the story. Now, eagle-eared listeners might pick up on that name because as part of the preview season for The Scarlet Keys on Twitter, we received these various dossiers of different people involved in maybe in the coterie, but not quite sure. And one of them was called Desiderio Delgado Alvarez. So normally known as Desi through most of the story. Yes. You've mentioned that this is sort of a prequel to Desi, where they feature in the Scarlet Keys. Yeah, maybe tell us a bit more about this character of Desi and what kind of a journey you wanted to take him on. So this is the, uh, if we break it into Breaking Bad, 
this is Walter White when he's still a high school chemistry teacher. Uh, he's a nice guy. Not that he, you know, he's particularly, mm. you know, he has heroic qualities as a fully realized character. Sorry, repeat the question. I fell over in my brain. Yeah, no, that's all right. I, I essentially, I wanted to, I'm going to jump in with something else as well, actually. I just yeah. wanted you to tell us a little bit more about kind of creating the character and what journey you wanted to take him on. Yes. And funnily enough, when I read Arkham Fiction, I often wonder what class characters would be. And in that opening sentence, we have, I went straight to, okay, is Javier a rogue that he does favours for friends? And there's this sort of like illicit thing there. And is Desi a seeker that sort of questing for knowledge, but also not quite believing what you find. So that's where I went to straight away. We've got a rogue. I was was exactly the same. Yeah. (laughs) I, I think, I think there's a very neat mix between the two by the end of the story is that the brother bound, of course, that one brother really steps into the shoes of the other. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really all about a family legacy and it is all about a, yeah, and I think those classes are very interesting that you, you've sort of called upon that, you know, the, uh, you know, the rogue and the seeker. And, you know, that there would be some, you know, one of those ones where they can have a few of their lower level cards from the other class. Uh, yeah, I'm not yeah. as much of a, uh, you know, I don't have the knowledge that you, you folks probably have. But, um, yeah, a little bit of both. Um, but definitely, you know, the, the premise is that this is a person who is being you know, sheltered from life. Uh, he's the mm. good boy. He's the one that's mm. been sent to school. He's a scholar. He's studying. The money that he's sending him to school doesn't come from either legitimate or, you know, good means, uh, I guess. Mm. So, you know, he's been largely sheltered from that as the second son. He doesn't have to fulfill his family's horrible destiny. So he's, you know, largely can avoid that to a point. But yeah, he does get dragged into it and and you know there's many references in that story to you know that he has moments of choice where it's like well do i go with what i would normally do or do i step into what javier would probably do and yeah it's um yeah it was a lot of fun a lot of fun mm-hmm. as a storyteller to uh you know, really sort of make someone uncomfortable and you know push them out of their comfort zone and you know run around cuba and model t fords and all that stuff yeah, and it's a sort of journey of him making the wrong choices. I'm a bit hesitant about wrong, but the branching path, he keeps making what feels... It's it's good horror writing. He keeps making what feels like oh, in the moment you. to be the right choice, even if as the reader you're like, oh, you're walking down this path that's taking you... You know, you're not going to come back from that, which which you want in horror. You want You don't want the characters to just go into the haunted house for no reason. You want to feel like if you were in their shoes you would do the same, even though you know it's a bad idea. It's like, don't split the party, to use the RPG um, <laughs> stuff. But, um, but yeah, it's definitely one of the things that I have loved in recently in gaming terms, there's uh, the mechanic that's usually worked into things called the hard choice, which I mm-hmm. think is really cool. It's like, it's not a success, it's not a fail, it's a hard choice. And I think that storytellers could definitely ram as many hard choices into their fiction as they can because nothing should be an easy choice you know it all should be hard choices uh you're you're doing your job that's where it should all be landing i like making my characters and they're like just being as horrible to them as i possibly can uh you really you know stick the knife in uh just yeah be horrible to them you know no one's there you know to have happy happy nice fun times they want to see you know people you know 
you know, with their back to the ropes, making, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, doing the best they can with what they what they can do. You mentioned RPGs there. Let's talk more generally about your gaming background. What, if anything, is in your gaming DNA? So what games did you grow up with? What do you like to play today? Oh, it's... Uh, I blame HeroQuest for starters. <laughs> that was probably the first... You know, that was my gateway drug. Uh, you know, that led to the D&D Red Box. That led to Dungeons & Dragons, Tunnels & Trolls, Shadowrun... Mm-hmm. All of the RPG side of things, Warhammer, you know, 40k, all of all of that sort of things, and and eventually card games got into the mix as well. You know, in more recent times, I have bloody loved um, the card game mode of storytelling, and there's a couple of interesting ones I wanted to mention. Mm-hmm. There was a really interesting one I came across recently called Cultist Simulator. I don't know if this is something. That oh you guys yeah, have yeah, encountered. I've, I've played that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's fun. And that's the whole thing that it is like the card game mode where you've got, you know, you literally just have little stubs of text that sort of link everything together. And, you know, that's, you know, rather than reading, you know, a whole Lovecraft story with its terrible dialogue, you've got, uh, you know, just a little bit to sort of whet your appetite. Be like, oh, there's something weird going on here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a fun one. Um, so the Occultist Simulator was really good fun. Uh, Fallen London was another really fun one where it's, you know, the whole idea is that, you know, it's card games that, that link it all together. Uh, Talisman mm-hmm. was really good fun. And that's, you know, card slash board game. I work in the disability field and I run a, a group called Spectrum Writing where I work with people with on the autism spectrum, um, mm-hmm. as I myself am. Uh, and that involves, we run like, lots and lots of D&D games. It's crazy. But I was going to a, a gentleman's house and he, he was housebound. He didn't leave his house. But he had his entire kitchen table was transformed into a talisman board. Wow. That was his, <laughs> he literally had this thing under Perspex. It was like permanently there. And it wow. was like, yeah, oh, wow. he had the board and all the expansion packs and all the stuff. There was like another level above this thing where the miniatures and that hung out. And so you could just oh, go to his house. God. And just like hang out and play talisman with this guy. And he taught me how to play talisman recently. And it was just like wild. And, you know, it's sort of not an active game. I think you can still buy it in game shops and stuff. I don't mm-hmm, know if it's been mm-hmm. made anymore. But the, I, was um, just, I, I, I was wondering whether my copy was behind me, but I don't think it is. <laughs> so, it's somewhere. <laughs> oh, there it's down, it's down the bomb. It's down the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, regarding time, uh, so, you know, uh, other video games as well. So it's like everything that had swords and dragons and horror and all that stuff in it is just my jam. Mm-hmm. You know, my Steam account would reflect that. Yeah, the other, uh, you know, regarding the time that I've got to play them is not much. Every now and then I do get a game of Arkham Horror out uh, just because mm-hmm. it's the one thing I'm enjoying at the moment. Basically, a lot of my D&D stuff is for work. I'm just like making campaigns for work. I've got one social game that I play for fun, about six that I'm like running for, you know, my clients. Uh, and wow. uh, it's just nuts. We've got so many going on. Something you said before I thought was interesting was when when you write in a setting that's that's kind of established, like, like Ar- the Arkham Files, you're trying to write something inside that that doesn't fundamentally shift what's happening outside of your story, right? And there's there's a challenge there. But actually, it, it struck me it's similar to running like a scenario. In a, in a, if you're in the Forgotten Realms in D&D, 
that's what you want to write. You might have like a cameo from Elminster, but no one's going to like take down. Well, I mean, you know, as a GM, you can do that if you want to. But if you're using established material, you know, you've got to write your stories within the world someone else has set the boundaries of um, and kind of carve out your own little corner of that. Do you think there's a similarity between those two things? Oh, absolutely. Um, and it's, and in fact, it's remarkably freeing as a, as a creative is that, you know, if, if someone says to you, oh, write us a story, you just be like, what about, um, you know, there's, there's you know, no limits there. But if someone says to you, you will write a very specific thing for this very specific thing within this framework, that immediately gives you the boundaries of your sandbox. And mm-hmm. more so, it gives you discipline and you end up with a better product as a result. I have loved write for hire work for as long as people have been allowing me to do it. It is an interesting discipline. It is much different to working for yourself. It -hmm. improves your skill. You get to play with other people's stuff. And it is an intellectual challenge because you cannot ruin someone else's stuff. Like if you're out for Star Wars, you can't just straight up kill off Luke Skywalker or, you know, I'm not even going to get into the sequels movies, but um, (laughs) you you, you can't, you know, you can't do anything outside of what you're permitted to do because it's somebody Mm -hmm. else's Mm -hmm. toys. You're being allowed to play with them, but they don't belong to you. So you've got to play nice and it's yeah, remarkably freeing. And I, I, I love it. I'll do it as much as I can get away with it. Oh, there's the other thing talking about the background of uh, role playing game and stuff. I recently, with one of my own standalone books, I had a Kickstarter for oh, yeah. a role-playing game in the same setting as my book. The book cover is in my um, wallpaper in my um, video chat. Oh, right. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there was a uh, Kickstarter in the same thing, and it, it got successfully funded. We got most of the stretch goals, but this thing was basically, my world is like Mad Max meets Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, I love it. And it was just, it's just fun. So, yeah, it was fun to sort of get into game designing as well as writing and actually, like, play with a rule set. So, you know, I would love mm-hmm. one day to even, you know, write for, um, you know, Fantasy Flight Games or whatever they let me into, you know, write some of the card game stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a different beast. But, yeah, writing, uh, you know, designing games and then coming up with the, the content for it. And, you know, it's still a type of writing, but it's, you know, mechanical and everything as well. And as an autistic person, you know, quite enjoy that that as well challenge of, of that stuff i've, I've actually got I've, I've got a, a notebook of ideas which is uh, it's it's my plan for a more time role-playing game at some point which which combines kind of cosmic horror um fantasy and post-apocalypse all all in one oh, setting <laughs> you gotta <laughs> one do day, it <laughs> one you day gotta, i'll get round to running that <laughs> you gotta throw that to the wall and see what sticks that is that yeah is fun it's very funny, and I even said this to someone the other day. They were like, "Why doesn't cosmic horror work in D anD D?" The answer to that was very simple: is that the unknown is known. There is, you know, they're like, "Oh, there's the creepy elder gods from the outer realms," but the realms that you're in, there's like twenty of them, and everyone knows <laughs> there's like gods and devils and things. And it's just like, yeah. so there's nothing actually unknown. There's like, oh, there's another layer of nonsense beyond all that. So. Yeah. Cosmic horror and D and D—they don't really work. Yeah. It's like let's look up the hit points of Cthulhu. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's his What's his physical damage resistance? I'm sure we yeah. can get around this. Uh, the, ba- <laughs> the bard tries to seduce Cthulhu. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's 
yeah, it doesn't work uh, for that reason. But, you know, with a bit of playing around with your cosmology, it could work. Just in D&D cosmology, it just doesn't land. I think there's, there's yeah. always a tendency for, for, for just nerds more broadly to, to want to, like, like categorize and, and, and like you said, like the mechanical writing, there's, there's something comforting in that. But there's a, there's a tension between that and cosmic horror, isn't there? How, how can you, you write about something and, and, and delve into the details on it, but it also stays unknown and scary at the same time? Yeah, it's, um, hard to, to pull that off because, of course, when we play the Arkham Horror card game, it's, bloody hard uh, you know it's it's not an easy game to master and i think that's part of the the fun bit is that like okay these things are scary because they are legit hard to deal with like they're in you're mm-hmm. in the same place if there's not a bunch of you working together well you're gonna die so that's one thing you could do mechanically to you know, illustrate the fact that these things are a threat you've got the unknowability of the chaos bag as well haven't you that yeah, you that... feel like you know what you're doing but it could all go wrong at any minute and it usually will there's not many good results in that bag it's all <laughs> it's all bad news yeah there's yeah i guess that's the 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 trick is that gamifying something that is typically and and this is the thing as well that one of the things that we were told in in the bible with the stories and all of that stuff is that of course cosmic horror typically is downbeat in its endings it is all like oh you know there's things beyond the universe that man cannot withstand and it's going to doom you anyway so why bother uh and it's like always sort of that bad you know empire strikes back ending yeah the 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 best you can do is just delay the inevitable that's that that that, that's that's a win is that it's not going to happen yet yeah, whereas in um, you know, Arkham Horror, the the whole philosophy, and they literally say this is, you know, stuff's here, so grab your whiskey and grab your shotgun and deal with it. <laughs> uh, so, you know, there's a bit more of, uh, you know, that's the gamified element of that is that, you know, they've changed the, the flavor of, of the genre a little bit. So um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you should be able to lock and load and fire a couple of rounds into Cthulhu's face. And yeah. I mean, that's the whole thing. I mean, look at Stranger Things, you know. the mm-hmm. You know, you should be able to, you know, play Metallica on top of a trailer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, while these demon bats are flying at you. And, you know, uh, you should go in, you know, swinging. Oh, that was so good. That was so good. <laughs> I, I went into a D&D game the day after that with a bunch of my Spectrum kids. They're like, did you watch Stranger Things? I was like, yes. <laughs> did you you see on top yes and they're like oh that metallica band sounds awesome i should check them out we're like you should (laughs) fantastic (laughs) yeah it was it was great uh just before we finish jason uh, if people want to learn more about you or read some more of your work where should they start what 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 books are a good place for them to start where can they go to find out more Absolutely. So I run a website at jasonfisher.com.au, uh, which is, uh, the Fisher is spelled F-I-S-C-H-E-R. Uh, that's my not very often updated website, which has got links to, you know, all of my work and all the bits and pieces that I do. My main US publisher is Outland Entertainment, and they have got quite a few of my books at the moment. So they, including the Papa Lucy and the Bone Man, which was recently nominated for most of the awards in Australia. Um, we got shortlisted for most of those. Uh, got a starred review in Publishers Weekly. Uh, had a kickstarted role-playing game connected to that series, and it's going to be a trilogy of books, which is really good fun. So it's that's awesome. 
one of my favourite ones. Uh, yeah, and of course, this new book, uh, Secrets in Scarlet. I imagine that listeners will be keen to be getting Secrets in Scarlet <laughs> as it's the perfect companion for the Scarlet Keys campaign expansion. Oh, again, like the work that's gone in from, um, you know, if my experience is anything to go by, um, you're in for a great time. You're going to find um, some authors that have really, you know, taken the source material and had a jolly good squiz at everything that's going to happen in the uh, campaign setting itself. And they've worked that into this whole anthology. And, you know, I've got to say, I love a good anthology, you know, whether it's a themed anthology or whatever, but to actually have anthologies in the setting of a game blows my mind that people want want to read this stuff i guess i'm used to yeah. australia where an anthology comes out and like 10 people buy it uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh you know this is a whole a whole other level and i love it i love being a part of it it's been a blast and um and i hope that everyone enjoys it and thank you folks for having me aboard of course no no trouble it's been absolutely fantastic to talk yeah thanks for joining us jason yeah thank oh, you wonderful So this is another one of our interviews with one of the authors of Secrets in Scarlet, the upcoming anthology of short stories all around the Scarlet Keys. And we're delighted to be joined by author Josh Reynolds. Hi, Josh. Hi. How are y'all doing? Doing really well. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, thank you. Good. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Excellent. It, Josh, you want to give us a quick intro to yourself and then we can we can dive in and start talking about the story. Okay. Uh, uh, my name's Josh Reynolds. I've been a freelance writer for, oh, Jesus Christ, uh, <laughs> uh, probably around 15 years now. Um, I've written extensively for various media tie-in franchises, including Games Workshops, Warhammer 40k, Age of Sigmar, Warhammer Fantasy, Aconites, Legend of the Five Rings, Arkham Horror, Watch Dogs, Zombicide, and my own stuff. Yeah, which, I was just sneaking at the end. <laughs> yeah, I've written a lot of my own stuff. Uh, oh, I also wrote Executioner novels for the over 50s in, in the audience who remember Executioner novels. It's gone uh, over my head. Oh, no. Peter's <laughs> oh, shaking his head. Yeah. You're babies. You don't remember the Executioner. <laughs> Mac Bolan, the Executioner. He hunts drug dealers. He's like the Punisher, except... He executes instead of punishes? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. He, he, is, he is who they ripped the Punisher off of. <laughs> wow, okay. Yeah. Okay. So tell us about The Red and the Black, which is your story in Secrets in Scarlet, and why might fans of Arkham Horror, the card game, enjoy it? Uh, the Red and the Black is essentially a game of cat and mouse between favourite Arkham Horror character Trish Scarborough and uh, a member of the Scarlet Coterie. Mm-hmm in the uh, crooked byways of Venice. And it's a, it's a nice, it's, it's a, it's one of those stories that doesn't have very much magic in it, but it's got a lot of skullduggery and a lot of secret cults and a lot of uh, word puzzles. There are word puzzles in it. (laughs) Yeah, they absolutely are. Yeah. What what prompted setting it in Venice? I I really like Venice. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's one of the, it's one of the places that I really enjoy visiting. uh, And I, it's it's one of the only places other than South Carolina where I really feel at home. Oh, really? Wow. 
and I have no idea why. I think I just I think it's just weird, and I kind of like it. <laughs> yeah, it is a really strange place, isn't it? Yeah. It's like nowhere else really on earth. I just kind of relax when I go there. It's you know, it's it's very odd. I'm I'm usually not relaxed at all. I'm always very tense. <laughs> so, put you know, put me in South Carolina in a swamp, calm. Put me in Venice, calm. Anywhere else, I'm you know vibrating like I've had sixteen coffees. <laughs> Maybe it's something about high water level? Might be. Might have something to do with the water level in the brain, yeah. the moon, phases, yeah. tides. I, I don't know. So you've, you've mentioned your protagonist there, Trish yeah. Scarborough. Yeah. She will definitely be well known to fans of the game. Um, yes. She's a really popular investigator. What attracted you to writing about her? Uh, it was a combination. I was looking for... Basically, I was looking for a main character for the story. They wanted me to choose one of the existing uh, investigators. Mm-hmm. And the editor, Lottie, she suggested that I use Trish Scarborough because n- no one had written about her yet. And she's, again, she's one of the more popular characters, but we don't have a book about her. We don't have a story about her. And it's because she's going to appear in my next Arkham Horror novel. Ah, interesting. That's, so. That's a, to- yeah. Bomb dropped on us. <laughs> yeah, I, I, can, I think I can get away with saying that because they've announced the novel. So she will be in Shadows of Nath, which is the next Arkham Horror novel I've written. That's so great. And so Lottie was kind of like, "Why don't you write a story just about her that kind of leads into the book?" And I was mm-hmm. like, "Yeah, all right, I could do that." Well, that's amazing because one of Peter's questions is, "Did writing the short story whet your appetite for something longer featuring Trish?" It, and we it have did. an answer. <laughs> yeah, and she is, she is, you know, she she's in the book a lot more than the the Arkham Horror investigators from Wrath of Nakai were in it. Mm-hmm. So they they were kind of cameos, uh, and Trish is actually one of the main characters of Shadows of Nath. So oh, we follow her for a good chunk of the book. How does it feel fleshing out a character like that that's established? Like the Arkham uh, Files characters, they're pretty lightly sketched. Uh, certainly, if you just pick up the card from the game and read the back of it, there's like a hook and that's it. How does it feel kind of diving into a character and expanding that um, over the full length of a novel? It's interesting because you don't want to expand too much mm-hmm. um, because you you don't want to you want to leave enough room that players and fans can can develop the story in their own way mm-hmm. for that character so you, you you don't want to put your own you don't necessarily want to put your own stamp on the character but you want to you want to give her enough life and enough personality that characters reading about it go okay yeah this is this is a good character i like this character and it and it feeds in well to what you read about her in the game mm-hmm. um, so it's it's kind of you're kind of walking a tightrope between <laughs> doing a lot of back backstory and building the character up and then turning the character into something that players don't necessarily want to see. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I guess that that's, that's been a feature of your career for 15 years by the sounds of it, having worked with so many of these franchises. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've done it. <laughs> I've done it a lot and, and it still continues to surprise me <laughs> how easy it is with some characters and how hard it is with other characters. What do you think? This is sorry, jumping around a little bit. What, what do you think? Okay. So, so I guess like the one of the primary audiences for these stories are going to be the players of the the, the games they're associated with, or the the right. pre existing fans. What do you think those people are looking for when they they flesh out the character? flesh out the characters like this. 
or, or maybe what what are the pitfalls you can fall into? Well, it, it's different depending on the character. I, th- I think that every character every character has their own fan base, and that fan base has different ideas about that character's personality and how they act and react in a given situation. So really, like in Trisha's case, what I was trying to do is go, okay, you know, she's a little bit Peggy Carter from the MCU, but she's also a little bit, you know, a little bit of a character from a John le Carre novel, you know, because you, you want to do realistic because it's Arkham Horror. So it's a little bit, it's realism underneath all the fish monsters and the, you know, the, the Cthuloid entities and the, the spawn of chaos and such. But you, you know, you, you still have to kind of make allowances for that world. So you, you take us basically my, like my starting point for her was she's a John le Carey character. She's a, you know, she's not James Bond running around. She's someone who solves problems. She solves puzzles and, and spies like she's an actual spy. So she, she's not a, I'm going to jump into a Aston Martin and shoot people. She's a, I'm going to hang out at this coffee shop and talk to people for six months and maybe possibly get some usable information. And then you kind of overlay that with the, she's doing this in a world wherein cults to fishmen exist. (laughs) And there are ghouls and there are amaphorous entities floating in the void of space, hungrily eyeing earth and, and give, you know, how much awareness does she have of this? How much does it affect what she, how she goes about her job? How much does it affect her loyalty to the American government? You know, does she question the government? Does she, question them, you know, their dealings with, mm-hmm. with cults and, and entities. Does she have a better idea of how to do it? Is she someone that goes, no, I think I'm going to shoot this thing in the face. <laughs> or is she someone that goes, you know what? I can't handle this. I'm leaving. And, and, and just kind of figuring out where the, the balance for the character is. Yes. You've, you've got kind of quite a grounded character in quite a, a, a fantastical setting to an yeah. extent. And there's like the drama in where those two yeah. meet. She's she's a character from another genre yeah. who's stuck in the wrong movie. <laughs> so she, you know she's a, she's a character from a from a gritty 60s, 70s spy novel who's now stuck in a you know a nineteen thirties pulp, pulp yeah. <laughs> you know weird tale you know story from weird tales and and it's kind of how much how much how much of her actual job can she accomplish while being chased by you know ghouls and night night gaunts and and whatever other gribbly gets thrown at her technical term yeah (laughs) Yeah. griblies so we get a little bit of a sense of her work for the black chamber in this story as well yes obviously the i'm guessing that the title alludes in the red and the black to it does it's i mean it's also uh chess sets were originally red and black oh really Uh, yes as well as white they were what White and black came after red and black. Right. I don't know. I don't know why, <laughs> but it, it used to be chess sets used to be red and black. And so it's kind of a, it's, it's a reference to the, the black chamber and the coterie, but also to chess and, and to kind of that game of one upmanship and move and counter move. Mm-hmm. Which comes across beautifully in the story. There's obviously a lot of Thank that you. sort of thing of the, the play of who's making a move and who's responding. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose there's this uneasy relationship uh, they put in one of our questions between the Congress and the, the or the coterie rather in the Black Chamber. Yes, I suppose what I want to ask about is how much of a lead did you get from Effigy or Aconite 
on what you could and couldn't include in terms of the Black Chamber and fleshing out what the Black Chamber's like in terms of Scarlet Key's characters. The Black Chamber is easy because the Black Chamber was an actual organization mm-hmm. because it, it fits in well with Arkham Horror. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> because the, the Black Chamber is most infamous for tapping every phone in America when phones became uh, common. So in the in the 30s, late 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 20s, early 30s, when phones became a lot more ubiquitous in the United States, the Black Chamber tapped every phone in America. Every single every single phone. They tapped every because they were all going through the same uh, phone uh, banks. Right. Okay. Yeah. You know. You know. You, you look. You see in an old movie, like an old black and white movie, and you see the banks yeah, of the yeah. telephone operators. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Black Chamber either paid those operators or went in and, and tapped those systems until Congress uh, and the president at the time kind of went, mm, no, you're not allowed to do that. They were like, but it's for America. <laughs> and then, but that didn't carry as much weight back then. <laughs> and so the government was like, no, you can't spy on people. Mm-hmm. You could spy on other people, other, other countries, but you can't spy on a horse. With the Coterie, it was, FFG were actually quite generous. Mm-hmm. So I got to see the actual campaign book and everything prior to writing the story and they kind of went, go nuts, invent a new character, which I did, and, you know, invent, you know, because there are all these members and the ones you see in the game are just kind of the, the tip of the iceberg mm-hmm. for the organization. So they're like, invent new members, figure out how the Black Chamber would, would come into contact with them and why, you know, go nuts. Mm-hmm. And then we'll tell you if you need to rein it in. And, and <laughs> I didn't. This is actually the, the first story I've had written in Arkham Horror where I didn't have notes regarding the IP. They just they just kind of read it and went, okay, yep, nope, that's great. <laughs> wow. that Nailed fits. it. <laughs> Nailed it. First time I was like, yes, no edits. That's great. Yeah. Is that a case of getting to know the IP better or something about the Scarlet Keys, just them saying you can go for it? There's so many characters here that we don't need to, I don't know, police what you're doing. Uh, both. It's, it's kind of getting to know what they want out of an Arkham Horror uh, character and out of a hard adventure and story, mm-hmm. but also kind of just because the nature of the coterie and the nature of the of that campaign is so vast and and convoluted mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. having a story that is basically about the vi- vast convolutions of two organizations like this, mm-hmm. it kind of fit. Yeah, you know? I was going to ask you about how you think the story you've written ties in with the themes of the upcoming cycle. Yeah. It sounds like spot on. It's sort of shadowy organizations interacting or or not and how that happens. I mean, I, I, when I pitched the story, I literally said, this is just the Black Chamber and the Scarlet Coterie having coffee. <laughs> this, is, this is a meet. This is basically just a meet cute, really, <laughs> between these two shadowy organizations which have massive power over people's lives. Wow. Yeah. It's the equivalent of a of a of a date, <laughs> you know. It's a Tinder date. Yeah. Somebody swiped left or right or up and down. I don't know how those and works. You've, you've chosen a romantic setting in Venice as well. I have. So I have. Makes a lot of sense. I did. I did actually consider that. <laughs> Interestingly enough, I, I almost find I think one of the, the the depictions of Venice from the media that sticks in my head the most is um, "Don't Look Now." Yeah, that that is a much more sinister version of Venice than you often oh, see yeah. in, in romantic films. And actually, we've had—I uh, I don't know whether you're aware of this, uh, Josh—we have had an Arkham scenario already set in Venice. Yeah, and we've had some teasers that in the the campaign we'll be able to kind of see those 
standalone scenarios into the into how it works as well. So, yeah, you, what you've written directly ties into what people will be able to play. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Don't Look Now was actually one of the inspirations for the story. Uh, and also the fact that Venice had the first functioning espionage agency in Europe. Uh, so it's actually been home to spies and yeah. spycraft for much longer than anywhere else uh, in Europe. And and it's got a nice big history of skullduggery and people, you know, trying to get one up on each other and chasing each other around the streets and everything. So it, it definitely feels like the kind of place you'd invent if you wanted to set at somewhere yeah. to set cool spy stories and and, yeah. and and stuff like that. I think lots of very narrow streets and good. It's very good for chases. I would say it is. It is very good for chases. Also very good for hiding from people chasing. Yeah, people. yeah, exactly. Actually, it's just struck me in Don't Look Now. She's got a, a, a scarlet, or the yep. figure's got a scarlet. Yeah, interesting. Scarlet coat. Yep. Yeah. Uh, there, there are actually a couple of references to a couple of different uh, stories. Not just Don't Look Now. There's references to. Uh, the Bravo of Venice, which is one of the, the first adventure novels, and a couple other things. I forget which. I, I like to throw in references to other stuff whenever I can. Yeah, mm-hmm. I do it. I, I do it way more than I should, according <laughs> to my editors. Yeah, who's that for? For you or for the reader? <laughs> yeah, it's it's mostly for me, just to prove how smart I am. <laughs> um, yeah, it's important. Yeah. Uh, but occasionally, Lottie will will send me a little note going, "I know this is a reference. I don't know what it's for. Is it necessary?" And I go, "Yes, yes, it is," because there are two people who will get that reference. But when they get it, they're going to feel they're absolutely gonna, over the moon with it. <laughs> they are. They're going to feel so smart to have spotted that. The cosmic horror side of the mythos or really of, of Arkham Files stuff is a lot more understated, I'd say, in your story than some of the others we've received. Yeah. Oh, from the collection. I'm imagining that's deliberate. How do you feel the cosmic horror side fits or not with Trish and with Venice and, and so on, what we've just been talking about? I, I think one of the reasons I avoided the cosmic horror stuff is because mostly when I write Lovecraftian pastiche, which Arkham Horror is, I very much prefer to write about monsters and guns. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like I like to read cosmic horror, but I I often feel a bit like I don't I'm not necessarily the right writer to capture it. Okay. You know. So it's it's one of those places where my my confidence in my writing, which is normally abnormally high, <laughs> takes a slight dip into only, you know, not not quite so abnormally high and and into kind of like you know, regular confidence. Mm-hmm. And so I, I tend to leave it for people who do a better job of it. I'm like, you know, I can, I can tell this story without the, without the, you know, the cosmic horror, without the great, the wider references to the, the vast uncaring universe mm-hmm. and kind of focus in on the character and let the character react to what she's seeing and, and just kind of push that other stuff. Let it, let it be implied, but I, I don't, I'm never quite sure that I can get across the true mm. scope of such things. There's the moment in the bookshop for Trish where she suddenly has that sense that it's a lot larger than she thought it was. Yeah. And that obviously could just be Venetian. And yeah. it's explained away from Trish's point of view of that they make use of all the space available to them. Yeah. But for me, there was that little tingle of, or has she yeah. also crossed the threshold into 
this strange space that's actually bigger on the inside than the outside. See, that that's a thing I can do. Like, I can do those little bits, but I can't sustain it. Okay. In my in my writing, I've, I've found, I've tried to sustain it multiple times in books, and it just, it always ends up, you know, reverting back to person shooting monster in face with gun. <laughs> Which is very fitting yeah. for Arkham Files. That, that is part of the promise of Arkham Files. That, that, that is what the editors tell me. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, uh, and and two, it's it's like in, in particular with regards to the story, I essentially didn't want to write a pastiche of Charlie Strauss's Atrocity Archives, um, which is very much Lovecraftian secret agents, spies, and and it's got that John Le Carre vibe with with the Cthulhu mythos overlaid on it, mm-hmm. and and he does it really well, and and I kind of did not want to write something that was just a copy of that (laughs) (laughs) yeah which is what would have happened had i tried it yeah that feels like almost the the obvious go-to if you're featuring trish yeah and there's obviously other things you can do in terms of as you said the kind of the chess game the cat and mouse elements of it that don't require that also to be unknowable horrors appearing around the corner or whatever it is pretty much and it's too because i figured for trish there is no such thing as an unknowable horror Trish is, yeah. Trish is, you know, the type of person, at least in my conception of her, she's the type of person who's going to see something like that and try and figure out what it is. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as the unnameable for her. She's like, mm-hmm. well, I know it. That, I, I can give that a name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's whether it's the right name or not that's going to bother me. <laughs> There'll be a file on it somewhere that I can, I yeah. can dig out. Yeah, pretty much. Stuff like that, which is just a is just a thread to her. It's you know, it's a it's a thread, a loose thread that she can pull and keep pulling until she gets the answer. Which is kind of the the tragedy of Trisha's character is that she's driven to do that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, she she is the perfect Lovecraftian protagonist because she's someone who's going to pull the thread until you you get to the monster hanging off the other end of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's sort of hubris personified. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm immune to all this until eventually there's an unnameable. There is an unnameable horror there. Yeah, pretty much. And my mind just can't collapse as trying to, you know, define the, the indefinable. I think it's, it's, it's a really, to me, it's a really compelling, when I've, when I've, so I've run some role-playing games involving kind of cosmic horror. And it's, yeah. I think one of the best ways to do it is, is through a conspiracy largely of just misguided people yeah. um, who think that what they're doing is for the best or for personal gain. And you know you can save your supernatural reveal, if ever, to the end of that that kind of web. Yeah, that's uh, in the few games of Call of Cthulhu I've played. That was that was generally how it works. Yeah, <laughs> you know, myth- misguided people, you know, in service to something they don't truly understand until the last horrifying realization, mm-hmm. and then you shoot it in the face. Yeah, <laughs> the important denouement. Yeah, pretty much. I'm American, it has to end in gunplay. <laughs> we learned that in kindergarten. <laughs> Sadly, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, should we move on and maybe talk a bit more generally? We'd written the question here, what's in your kind of gaming DNA? I, I, do you have a gaming background, Josh? Is that? I mean, you've written a lot of fiction related to games. I played, obviously I played Dungeons & Dragons. Of all flavors and stripes, your Dark Suns, your Forgotten Realms, your Ravenlofts. I really liked Ravenloft. I played, you know, Legend of the Five Rings. Um, not in the most recent edition, but like two or three editions ago. Mm-hmm. I played Call of Cthulhu. 
multiple times. Always loved that. Always died. Always went insane. <laughs> That's the point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the only t- the only time I managed to survive a campaign was when my character decided to sell out the other characters to the cult. <laughs> what kind and of I managed lesson- to walk? <laughs> we'll yeah. see what kind of lessons that taught you <laughs> yeah uh, but you know that was the only time that character managed to walk away free and clean full sanity <laughs> wow. yeah but i also played i played a lot of war games uh, a lot of historical war games i play obviously i played games workshop stuff i'm a big fan of blood bowl for instance oh, excellent yeah one of the best games oh yeah, yeah. it's I, I love blood bowl i'm getting back into it now which is which is really fun i have i've, I've played everything i've written I've played uh, to to some degree or another, just maybe not a lot. Um, for instance, I haven't played the Arkham Horror card game. Mm-hmm. I'd like to, yeah. but I don't <laughs> know anybody who plays it, so it's one of those things where, like, should I? <laughs> I'll wait. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll wait until somebody says, "Hey, let's 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 start playing this." Mm-hmm. Do you think that step? Of having played the game is important in your in your job of uh, translating it to fiction. I do not think it's important. It helps. Okay. It's not. It's not something you have to do. Like I had never played. I had never played Warhammer Forty K. I played Rogue Trader. Mm-hmm. You know, a couple of games from Rogue Trader, which was much faster and looser than modern Forty K. Mm-hmm. But you know, until after I'd started writing books for it. I knew the background. You, you need to know the background of the game, but you don't necessarily need to play the game unless the IP holder wants you to incorporate the mechanics of the game in some way. Right. Like for Arkham Horror, you know, incorporating the idea of finding clues, because it is at heart an investigative game, mm-hmm. that's important. And and since I'm a big fan of occult detective fiction, that that's actually, actually kind of comes naturally to me, because that's that makes sense incorporating the mechanics of say zombicide into a zombicide novel is a little more difficult because those mechanics aren't necessarily meant to provide a narrative experience. Yeah. They're meant to solve a problem in the game. They're not necessarily meant to, to move the character from point A to point B. It's interesting because the, the, the the mechanical experience of playing, uh, well, Arkham Horror, the card game, probably most of the Arkham files games, Whereas you've said, you know, it's it's like that slow build up and that that kind of extensive research that Trish does. Yeah. Usually in the car game, things go wrong very quickly, and suddenly there's <laughs> monsters pouring out the woodwork, and you've yeah. got to deal with that all. It, it, although it is an investigative game, you're kind of at the you're, you're right at the sharp end of, of the narrative. All of the investigation happens yeah. behind the scenes, and then boom, you're dropped into the haunted house. Well, that's that's kind of that's kind of one of the good things about it because you're you're filling in in your head what the character is doing, yeah. and in, in most cases, if you read if you're reading the background of the character for the game, they've already they've been doing their investigations. Mm-hmm. It's what you're seeing is the end of the investigation. You're, yeah. you're coming in on the third act or yeah, the second exactly, act. Yeah. <laughs> it's even the very first scenario of the game. It yeah. starts with the characters having gathered at one of their houses because they're investigating murders and yeah. they're in the study. And yeah. it's exactly that. And then things Stop. go wrong. Yeah. yeah. And and that's the scenario. Yeah. A, a friend of mine who's a writer, a, lot, a couple of years ago, we were talking about this. And, and what he said was, is most readers don't want to see the buildup. Most people who enjoy fiction, what they want to see is the last act. They want to see the third act when the gun comes into play <laughs> and somebody gets killed or the bad guy gets his, his 
just desserts. They don't want to. They don't want to have to sit through the bad guy being a bad guy. Mm-hmm. You know, you do, you don't want to. You don't want to see that build up because most people just don't. It, it's not that they don't have the patience. It's that they can fill in the backstory themselves. Mm-hmm. Because you you look at a character and you go, okay, he's he's an asshole. <laughs> I'm sorry. Am I am I allowed to say asshole? Yeah, this? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so he's an asshole, and you know he's an asshole. We've already got that in. We don't. We don't need you to belabor his assholishness. Mm-hmm. We just want to see him get tipped over the side of the boat or shot. You know. I was just. I, I was going to just reference another another game. I'd, I'd mentioned in one of the other interviews, Blades in the Dark. Yeah. And there's there's a lot of that. That's a that's a kind of heist based, but also a kind of uh, steampunk setting uh, role playing game. And there's a lot of advice to force you to into starting. Like you say, in that at the kind of the end of the second act, so don't spend too long on the build up because it 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 drains the momentum you want when yeah. you're sitting down to play the game, um, and yeah. it, it forces you to drop people in. It's like okay, here's the setup. Don't plan anything else. Okay, you're at the skylight, ready to drop in with your with your grappling hooks. Go. Yeah. Because you can you can get the backstory through the characters' interactions, through their dialogue. So all of that's backfill. It's like it's like a. This the same author I was talking to. What his advice for writing short stories was: always start with the third act. <laughs> yeah, you start at the beginning of the third act, and that's 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 it. Everything mm-hmm. else, you don't need it. You know. Yeah, and I think that comes across really well in the red and the black. In yeah. That you then do sketch in the journey it's taken, uh, Trish has taken to end up in Venice. Yeah. But we didn't need to start with her in Budapest or in Vienna. No. Before she gets there, it's like no, no, no. We'll start in Venice. She's already feeling pursued and harried, and then we can fill that stuff in, and and the reader can easily add in the details they need for that. And and part of that is pragmatic because you only have so many words to tell a story. So why not mm-hmm. tell the exciting bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and some of it's just because, again, you don't really need to see her solve a mystery in Budapest. You might want to, mm-hmm. but you don't need to. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Interestingly enough, that, that there's a a few years ago, FFG published the Investigators of Arkham book. I don't know whether that was part of the the kind of a story bible you you were sent. Yes, it was actually. But but, but weirdly, that's almost first acts. It yeah. sets up an interesting conflict for all the characters, and I found it quite. It, it's a great book. It's a beautiful book as well. Yeah. But it's almost frustrating to read because <laughs> you get a lot of build-up and no resolution over like twenty odd stories. Well, that, I mean, that frustration is part of it. That's that's the point. Yeah, it's it because you're you're yeah. supposed to want to to fill out their stories. Yeah. But oh yeah, read, reading that book for me was just a exercise in in frustration <laughs> because yeah, yeah. I'm reading it, going, "Yep, I want to write that story. I want to write that story. <laughs> oh, I can link these three characters in this one story." And and being going like, nope, you're not going to get to do any of that because that's for the players to do. So don't touch it. Hands off. You mentioned the word limit in short stories as well. I just yeah. wonder, I know we're coming to the end of our time, but is there a, any tangible difference to you between writing an Arkham Files short story and an Arkham Files novel? Uh, more word count. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, essentially... A, the short stories I've written for Arkham Files have been on the shorter end, so they've been about five to 6,000 words, mm-hmm. which is the standard for most non-IP fiction, or so non-media tie-in fiction. So I'm used to writing that level. 
that means things are a little more immediate, things happen a little quicker, but you, and you also don't have to fill in as much backstory. Mm-hmm. With a book, we are, we also have very tight word limits of 86,000. So I find that focusing on action and the characters doing and moving and going is much more important to keep that kind of that, that pace going. Mm-hmm. So again, it, 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 you kind of have to make a decision about how much backstory, you know, where do you want the characters to start? Do you really need them to start at a coffee shop or can they already be running? You know, in my case, it's always, always started a coffee shop, always had the characters sitting and chatting for a little bit before, before the running, because you that's the meat kids. <laughs> you, do. you do. You need the landmark. You need to show them doing stuff. Mm-hmm. And in books, you can also get away with doing action. That's not necessarily action. So you can have long stretches of time where characters talk or investigate. Mm-hmm. But you also have to be aware of whether that's actually necessary for the story. Mm-hmm. Because again, you, you 86,000 words is not a lot of words. It sounds like a lot of words when you're just starting out. By your fifth or sixth year, you realize, as a writer, you realize 86,000 words is not, if not a lot. That's, that's like, that's like a month of work. That's, that's a month, two months of work. Yeah, there's something, you're making me think of the fact that in the novel form, when you have that dip or that transition from one act to another where they're yeah. maybe doing a bit of research or clue finding, yeah. that can be where it loses momentum for me as a reader, even though that's the part I'm interested in as a player yeah. of the game. So yeah, there's something interesting going on there about how you keep things going. So when I, when I do stuff like that, I tend to have them start investigating or start reading something at the end of a chapter, and then you pick up after they've done it, and you can kind of summarize what they found. Ah, uh, yeah, okay, that's really top, nice. top, yeah. top tip there, yeah, that's really good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Un- unless, them, unless the act of finding the clue or finding the information is something you can make a scene out of. Mm-hmm. Like have to have two or three characters reading through books, and then they find something and, and find a horrible picture that you can describe, and and get some banter out of, or get some discussion out of. Yeah, but yeah, but generally, it's be- that kind of thing is best. It's 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 like a movie. You have a cutscene. They go to a library. The next scene is them finding the information. Yeah, yeah. We don't, Trying we don't, to yeah. make that itself dramatic if it's just pouring over books for many hours might not be <laughs> yeah. dramatic. No. Josh, uh, I mean, there's plenty more we could talk to you about, um, (laughs) but just if if people want to read more about you or your work, um, where's a good place to start? I have a a website. Uh, It's joshuamreynolds.co.uk, I think. Yep, joshuamreynolds.co.uk. Joshua M. Reynolds is one word, because that's how internet addresses work. (laughs) And that is my my website. It's got a list of all of my work creator-owned and media tie-in. It's got news and links to things like my Ko-Fi and my Twitter and my Facebook and, you know, whatever social media stuff you need to you need to look at. I'm on Twitter quite a bit, at J.M. Reynolds. Yeah, at J.M. Reynolds, um, where I mostly want to talk about whatever is interesting to me at that point. So it's <laughs> it's very erratic. It's, it's My wife compares my Twitter feed to watching a ferret. <laughs> and it, a ferret, a ferret have you know have their little weasel war dance thing because I just yeah. kind of bounce from topic to topic. Um, what a review! Oh, yeah, is there a date for the 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 new Arkham Files novel you're writing as opposed to Secrets in Scarlet? Uh, let's see. Uh, it is already written, so it should be out 
I think it's coming out next year. Let's let's check my notebook. According to Simon and Schuster, it's coming out in March of next year. Perfect. That's great. Oh, we'll, yeah. we'll look out for that. Yeah. And is it a, another? Is the first one was Ross of and Kai, and yeah. then this is something of Pnath. So is it? We've gone. We've gone a layer deeper in the mound. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> We've gone from the red red litten to the black litten zone, or the it, pretty much. Um, yeah. This is the wow. uh, it's it is it is dealing with ghoul cults and some old enemies of the countess mentioned briefly in the Wrath of Nakai, and they finally make an appearance in in this book. And it takes place in Paris and and France, mostly in France. Um, so you haven't come back to Venice. I haven't got. I, I I would like to take her to Venice because that's that's where she's from. Mm-hmm. But I decided this one. I decided to stick to places in France I'd been. So, <laughs> so in actuality, you're following a road journey my wife forced me to take to visit her relatives. Oh, there we go! Wow. <laughs> and the Countess is not happy about it. No, no, she is not. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Josh, for joining us. We really appreciate it. And yeah, we'll recommend all our our listeners to pick up Secrets in Scarlet and enjoy your story in it. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. So this is another one of our interviews with authors from Secrets in Scarlet. We're delighted to be joined by Carrie Harris. Hi, Carrie. How are you doing? Doing all right. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us this morning for you, afternoon for us, the wonders of the internet. (laughs) Yeah. So let's dive in with your story, which is Honor Among Thieves. Um, Maybe do you want to just give us the top level pitch for the story and why people who play Arkham Horror the card game might enjoy it? Yeah, um, Honor Among Thieves is based on the Scarlet Keys expansion, and uh, it's about a, a pair of twins who are, well, they're thieves, and um, <laughs> they're they're faced with a heist that is very atypical in that they can't, you know, most heist stories are you prepare and there's lots of blueprints and you know, you have that montage going on. They don't have that here. They have zero time. And so it creates the opportunity for mistakes. And what they discover is that the world is a lot bigger than they once believed. Wow, enticing straight away. We have read it, but it yeah. does sound enticing if I hadn't read it. It's, it's yeah. hard to, to pitch it without giving things away. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. It's the, the problem with the short stories, isn't it? Um, you sort of straight into the action, and yeah. it's not long before before the twists are hitting. I definitely picked up the the heist feel to it, but like you say, it's it's not it's not quite a reversed heist, but it's a lot of what you'd expect from a regular heist, which is you know the the kind of smugness <laughs> and the flashbacks yeah. is it, it, isn't quite there, uh, and it does give scope for things to go wrong pretty quickly. Yeah, well, and you've got, you know, you have a bit of that prep and, and whatnot, but it's very condensed. Yeah. So I think the only way you can do a heist in a short story. Mm-hmm. So the story is also set in Buenos Aires. Yes. What prompted setting it there? Any particular connection? Uh, not to me, uh, but actually I, I took that from the game. We were very lucky to get an early peek at the game and mm-hmm. have our 
you know, we each got to pick our characters. And um, I, I really love the character that turns out to be Rosa. So, you know, looking into that character's... Gosh, this is hard. Uh, <laughs> no spoilers. Uh, looking into that character's background was really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. So the the setting kind of came with the character. Okay, yeah. You love the character, so you're like, right, well, Buenos Aires it is. It, that's yeah. right. Never been there. What could I Google? Yeah. yeah. It, I think also the, the reason why maybe it's a, it's it's probably the most of a struggle of the of the three stories or the three authors we've we've talked about as i think after i read it i've kind of deliberately stayed away from learning anything about uh the coterie and the the, the how the scarlet keys work what they mean yes. uh, to go into the expansion relatively fresh one of our one of our listeners has actually made how many pages is it now Frank? On um, 90 something 90 page something long. Page, like law dump of all gathered information. Um, I think the listener is turning into a character from the Scarlet Keys with newspaper clippings and string. <laughs> so, so I think I, I learned the most about the coterie from your story uh, as I did from all three of the stories. What was it like working with the design team in FFG to get to, to work on those details and how much you were allowed to kind of reveal? Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of back and forth and and because my my story is very much at the moment where this character joins the coterie, like what can we say that's enough to whet your appetite without spoiling the game if you find the book before the game and then what will make it feel fulfilling if you find them in the reverse order? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. so trying to make it work from both sides was was an interesting puzzle that I've, I've not had to do uh, before. Yeah. It's two distinct audiences, isn't it? It's the kind of the pre-getting that box and the post, and they're going to have very different expectations. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and a lot of tie-in fiction is like that. You want it to appeal to people who know the thing and love the thing. And give them something a little extra, usually Easter eggs and things like that. But then mm-hmm. for somebody who doesn't know the thing, you want them to pick it up and say, oh, now I need to look at the game or the movie or the whatever this is based on. So it, it's kind of a unique thing to tie in fiction, I think. Mm, and yeah. and it, what, I think especially to tie in with this this campaign as well. Actually, the theme of that is already like a. I, I think maybe this is common to a lot of like Lovecraftian tie-in fiction, or or certainly like Lovecraft-inspired fiction. Like the more you research and the more you look into it, the more little trails you've you've got that kind of lead you a little bit deeper. Exactly. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt you. Um, no, please. <laughs> no, it's. It's very much, um, when I write a, a tie-in work for a game, I want reading it to feel a little bit like playing it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have that same sense of discovery of things from the from the story that you have when you play the game, because that's one of my favorite things about the game, is that you're not having to pretend as a player that you don't know things that your characters don't know. Yeah, mm-hmm. They do a really good job of, revealing information as you're playing and without a GM, which is brilliant. I wanted it to feel like that. So we had to reveal something. 
Mm. The question yeah, and you is want, how much. <laughs> yeah, you want that payoff as a player and you want that payoff as a reader as well. If you get to the end of the story and it's like, oh, so I'm not going to find out any of this. Yes. Intrinsically frustrating. Yeah. 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 I've been on record on the show before talking about some of my favourite moments playing the game are those times where I feel really like there's no gap between what the investigator's doing and what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm doing the exact same. Where should we go? How do these things fit together? And I find that really rewarding. And yeah, exactly as you say, there's no one else doing that at the table. There's no one guiding me. It's just, yeah, a very kind of real experience. Yeah. I suppose. Yeah, I agree. And, um, you know, to be honest, the, the game is so good at doing that, that, you know, I also work in games. I'm, I'm working on a boxed game right now. And mm-hmm. one of the first places I went was Arkham Horror. Just to look at it, why do I love it? Like, what can I learn from it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what's your history with the game, now that you're mentioning it? We know your your author bio did say that you've played Arkham Horror, which not all of the authors in Secrets and Scarlets have. Yeah, yeah. I actually used to work in um, board and RPG games. So okay. I play a lot of games. I have way too many. It's a problem. <laughs> um, I admit it. And I'm also a huge Lovecraft fan. I actually wrote a, a Lovecraft novel uh, back in the day. So when they when they said, you know, Arkham Horror, I'm like, look, I own all the Lovecraft games, <laughs> all of them. You're <laughs> sort of, sort of the perfect person for the job, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I've written Lovecraft before. Um, I'm one of those people though who plays. I replay games like a weird amount. Um, I've replayed the core game so many times I'm still not done yet because mm-hmm. I want mm-hmm. to experience all the different ways. Like, of course, I know the story, but, you know, playing with, with multiple people and with different characters, and I really love the solo play. I play a lot of solo games, you know, and, and trying to figure out a way to make the puzzle work. Yeah. Depending mm-hmm. on who you're playing, especially if you're playing someone who's not suited for that particular adventure can you can you find a way to get through Mm. so so yes i played it i i really love the game and um i might have a board game problem (laughs) one of our listeners actually he he runs a youtube channel where he plays through the corset campaign it's it's a random deck right frank dumb luck Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He basically generates a random deck with a different investigator and runs through the corset campaign again just to see how it, the, the experience changes um, yeah. with all these things he's not able to control. So so what, what do you think... Um, you sort of hinted at looking at the card game for inspiration. What do you think... And, and obviously, uh, from your history and writing for games, what do you think the challenges are when, you, when you've got like a narrative, interactive narrative rather than a book that you're writing you know i think actually the the challenges are very similar in that you need to figure out what to reveal and what to hold back and when to reveal it so that it creates the most um satisfying experience when you're interacting with it whether you're reading it or playing it so really it's both of them are are a question of information management Mm -hmm. you know you have a story and how do you parse that out so that the experience of the story can be as satisfying as possible? Of course, the pacing for each one is different. And you also, in a story, 
I have ultimate control over how you experience it. Whereas in a game, you have to allow for choice. Because if you don't have the opportunity to make a meaningful choice, it's not fun. I hate those games where they're like, make a choice, and then regardless of what you choose, this same thing is going to happen to you. <laughs> the two doors open onto the same room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hate that. It's interesting. Yeah, like that. It's almost the challenge I've always found. If if I'm like running a role playing game, that's some kind of conspiracy. Is you can pin a lot on the players discovering like one clue, um, and when they don't, you're really stuck. <laughs> yeah, or they'll pick up the thing that that you just threw in there because you thought it was cool, and you have no idea where it goes. It, in fact, it goes nowhere, and then they're like, "We're going to investigate." that <laughs> yeah so there's this sort of the same challenge i guess in writing a short story of keeping that forward momentum of not i mean at least like you say you have the ultimate control as the story writer to say no we're not going to stay in the foyer letting you look at everything here we're going to move this along we need to find some kind of momentum i suppose yeah we have that in honor among thieves where rosa's sister turns up saying hey we have a job let's crack on and immediately then we're into the the heist and everything that comes with it. Yeah, and it's a choice that they cannot refuse. Mm, mm-hmm, yeah. And as a reader, you might be saying, oh, no, this kind of stinks. I don't think you should do this. But also you can't make them stop yeah. beyond closing the book. Yeah. 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 It's, a, it's a great, like, that's more the horror side, right? That's the, the don't go in there kind of... You want to shout at them, don't do not do that. <laughs> yeah. It's an obvious mm-hmm. trap. <laughs> well, it is a balance between making that feel believable, because how many horror stories or, or movies have you experienced where you're like, that is the stupidest thing you could do. Why would anyone go into that basement when you hear the sound of 47 chainsaws or whatever it is? <laughs> Nobody would do that. You'd leave or call the police. So you have to make it believable that they would choose that, even knowing that, you know, once they've had an an encounter with the unknown, mm-hmm. why don't they choose to run? Yeah, they need yeah. to have a they need to have a reason. Otherwise, it's it's not believable. It doesn't hold together. When I was doing some research into you, Carrie, <laughs> I noticed that you'd you've written a book about uh, pulp, as in pulp fiction. Yes. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that, about that, and then about your love of the genre as well? Yeah, yeah, I'm a huge pulp fan, and I used to, when I was a kid, I loved uh, reading and watching anything in which things blew up, lots of adventure, monsters. So pulp was a very natural place for me to go, and then you know, new pulp. You know, you have very pulp inspired characters like Indiana Jones and. And that kind of thing. So I was I was into all of all of that, and uh, used to read all the old pulp magazines and and things like that when I had gone through the entire library. You know that was all that's left. So that's what I read. <laughs> mm-hmm. So when I I actually got to write pulp through gaming, I worked for a game company, and they had a a pulp game that needed some fiction to go with it, and it was like. I am the person. Here I am. Let me do this. So I, I wrote three books 
in the pulp genre, uh, a, a couple of young adult adventures, and then and then an older one with you know time traveling psychic dinosaurs and rocket packs and you know all the just crazy the brain in a jar, all the tropes kind of mashed into one book. Was that, was that that wasn't Spirit of the Century, was it? Spirit of the Century is the game, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I bought it a while ago. I've never played it. I think the first, the very first thing I ever kickstarted, they did like a board game. Yeah. Just I don't. The think listeners, it's, I don't Peter think it's... is looking once again. Him, which is gaming shelves. <laughs> I had to do this during one of the other interviews to find Talisman. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I, I remember I, I, I kickstarted and I bought I bought the RPG um, and it had a great um, like GM advice chapter. So even though I never played it, a lot of the advice in that in that book has stuck with me. Yeah, well, there's also a kids version of that called Young Centurion, which is set uh, in the same world, and I co-wrote that game. No way! So small world. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but you know. The minute they said we are collecting stories for Lovecraft pulp plus pulp plus game, it was like this is the moment I have been waiting for. My <laughs> mm-hmm. here I am. <laughs> it really does, like, you know. Arkham Files, the the FFG IP for their Lovecraft stuff, is often described as a more pulpier, uh, well, a, a more pulpy or a pulpier. A version of Lovecraft where you can have take guns and shoot at these unspeakable monstrosities. It doesn't have to be simply that your brain dribbles out of your ears at the end of every adventure. Yeah. And wow, you've got the love of Lovecraft and you've got the love of pulp. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the, like you said, that's the big difference is that, you know, in pulp, your heroes are capable. They're always, there's always something they can do, even if they can't exactly solve the problem. They can do something. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. in original Lovecraft, you're helpless. Like you said, your brain's going to dribble out your ears. Might as well get used to it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's definitely one of my favorite approaches to Lovecraft. And it's funny actually looping back to what you said about playing solo as well and kind of wanting to make it work with a, a character who might not be a good solo character or who you might find harder like why is this librarian trying to fight a ghoul rather than whatever else? There is something quite Lovecraftian about that, the f- people finding themselves in situations that they're really going to struggle in. And it's really interesting how Pulp provides the answer in a way of like, well, our heroes should be able to... That Yes, they might be ordinary people, but they should be able to do something about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I tried to do that a bit in my story as well because... Rosa and her twin sister are very much dependent on each other. Each one has their strength. They have a very mm. strong partnership. So when you forcibly separate them, mm. now you're, to a certain extent, a fish out of water. You have to do things that normally someone else would take care of for you. And then you're running on instinct or you're trying to make quick decisions or mm-hmm. what would the other person do? All of those kind of situations. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You have in your story, more on the Lovecraftian side, a thing, I won't say what it is, but <laughs> a a garment, shall we say? Yeah. That, has, that seems to be more than just a garment. 
How was it writing and exploring, describing to the reader something that is both completely mundane, but also has this unknowable, threatening other side to it? Yeah. The best thing about it was trying to figure out exactly what it did. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because I I actually got to make some choices there. Mm -hmm. A lot of the times when you have magical objects or mystical objects, if you want to call it that, in an IP, it's already, they've already decided for you. This is what it does. Yeah. And so we could see in the game, uh, in, in the expansion, you can see the effects of what this thing does, but it's never explained. Right. Wow. Okay, got you. Okay. Yeah. So this is an opportunity. I I really am interested to see how how it goes when people read the read the story and then go experience the game. How that how those two experiences will work together. Mm-hmm. Because each one gives you kind of a piece of the puzzle. I think one of the most fascinating things is translating kind of narrative into mechanics and vice versa as well. I'm a sucker for a card that does has a novel mechanic, but that reflects how it would act in 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 the world. Yeah, trying to find some way to make that experience what would be playing the card visceral and real is is kind of the fun of the story. To try and like, what would it feel like to use this thing? I I did think in in my head I thought if this was in the game I can sort of picture how it would how it would be a card right yep. and I'd be interested to see how that matches up to yeah if 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 we do see it literally as a card um and seeing how it matches up with that so yeah yeah I'll I'll mm-hmm. come back to you in a couple of times <laughs> when we've had a chance to play Carrie. <laughs> I'm not sure if you can tell from my face, but I really want to say one right now that I cannot say. So yes, we'll talk about This is one of the great challenges of <laughs> recording about one piece of the puzzle, but without having all of it in front of us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's something really enticing as well. I mean, it, you could have said to us, oh, well, yeah, it is just a card in the game. So I'm just describing what the card does. But you've already said, well, it wasn't that. I feel like I, you see the what's done by this thing, but it's not as simple as here are the numbers that I have to translate into a short story, which certainly hearing that, I'm really intrigued now and wanting to kind of fit the pieces of the puzzle together, which is exactly what the Coterie wanted, isn't it? <laughs> I think, And there's also an element, sorry, getting into the details of the story, a, a tiny fraction, there's almost an element of it, it the the effect of the relic fits very well with the character, right? You can see why they belong together. Yeah. I know you're probably not able to say much because <laughs> we're peeking behind the scenes here, but based on what you've talked to FFG about. But I I would almost say, is there, a, is there an angle where nothing is accidental here, where it's kind of, it was planned out, or just a happy accident? That's interesting. Well, I guess... I guess what I can say is that the pieces that I was able to create, I went into knowing that you have the relic and you have Rosa, and I filled in some gaps in the identity and abilities of both. And so those gaps that I filled in, I very deliberately tried to make them fit. Yeah. So Mm. there's the material that existed before, and then there's the material that I built. 
if I've done my job correctly, you won't be able to tell which is which. Right. And it will mm-hmm. feel seamless both in in not being able to tell which is which, but also feeling like they were meant to be together. Whether that's because of what they did or because of what I did, it, it should all create one co- cohesive whole. If I'm making any sense at all. No, no, yeah. I, I think what's... Because you you work with some like mega franchise as well. You've you've written no, uh, Marvel novels. Yeah. So I could, I don't know. In in my imagination, it would be like it would be very hard to do something, kind of read something into the background of a Marvel character you've picked up. Yet FFG is a bit like it's it's not it's not more parochial. I almost feel like you could maybe influence how the story, how those characters sit within their their IP going forwards. Uh, would you, was that the case? Were you able to kind of inject things in there which might stay along with those characters now? Yeah, I mean, I think part of the difference is that uh, for this particular expansion, these characters, like Rosa, didn't exist. Mm. So... There's a lot of room to help uh, help build who she is and where she came from and what kind of person she is. Because really, I only have the content of one expansion to yeah. work with. And so the real difference is that versus the Marvel Universe, which is, you know, decades of I was gonna say, yeah. and <laughs> movies and, and all the things. So you have to kind of find the holes there, you know, and figure out where can I add without breaking everything that came before you. Were you interested in, at any point, when you were pitching to write for for this, writing from the point of view of an investigator, of an established character in the IP, given as well, I suppose, that you've played with a bunch of them? Yes, I'd love to. For this particular project, by the time I came into it, you know, that they, they knew that wasn't exactly an option. Okay. So, but... I'd love to come back to Arkham and write some of the characters that, you know, that we know and love because you get to build on that and, and draw from directly from your play experience. That was one of the other things was that when we saw the um, expansion, it was, it was just, it's in draft format. It's not Mm. done. So you can't play it. You're having to try to kind of imagine what it will be like to play what you'll know of these characters and how can I build on that without actually doing it. Mm. Yeah, you're not coming to it with, I've got 10 plays under my belt of this campaign and here are the story beats I really want to hit or I know other readers will have definitely hit. It's much vaguer. Right. Well, and with an established investigator, you kind of know based on the cards in their deck what they're good at, what things people expect to see you know, and, and you're, it kind of helps you decide how they're going to get out of whatever mm. trouble you put them in. Yeah. When it's newer, you don't, you don't have as much of that history to draw from. I just wanted to chat maybe a little bit about kind of more cosmic horror, um, if that's okay, Carrie. Yeah. So, so I guess probably maybe my perception more than anything, although like Lovecraft literally was a, a pulp writer. I think when people think of pulp, they probably think more of the kind of action side of it. You know, the like you said, Indiana Jones earlier on, the, the yeah. larger-than-life characters, the two-fisted action heroes. How do you think that having those kind of characters confronted with 
like a cosmic horror. Did you think those two genres kind of mesh at all? Where where one's about about kind of insignificance and the other one's about empowerment? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think so. I think part of Lovecraft, part part of the reason Lovecraft's work, original work, feels so bleak is is because of where he was coming from in terms of his personal beliefs and you know all the icky stuff that mm-hmm. everybody knows about. I think at this point, yeah, and and his personal feelings of helplessness as a result. Mm-hmm. So I think that combining adventure pulp with Lovecraftian pulp is almost, in a way, a, a way to reclaim that. You know, these stories are, they're about diverse, capable people who don't exist in Lovecraft's original world because the diverse people weren't. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so... I think in a way that that kind of turns that turns the concept on its head and and also is ultimately about yes there are cosmic forces at work that are beyond our control that it is very reasonable to be afraid of them but that we're not completely hopeless you can do something mm-hmm. even if it's not to ultimately solve the problem and banish the great old ones yeah you can at least resign yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's always a a temporary victory to be had isn't there yeah yeah well and i think one of the brilliant things about the game is that it shows how those temporary victories can build up to Mm. create something or to make a possibility that that you can actually do something meaningful in a greater scheme of things well, there's that tension, isn't there, in the risk with describing the the most terrifying, unknowable, world-consuming entity is then it is very hard in 250 pages to then wrap it up neatly with, and I shot it in the face with a shotgun <laughs> and we're going to be okay. Yeah. You've just told me that it's unstoppable, unknowable, incomprehensible and you know what i part of what i enjoy about the aconite novels is that normally the authors don't go that far so that i am more willing to believe in whatever victory it is that that the protagonists might scrape so carrie thank you so much for your time i see you've gone on a bit maybe just to finish off if people want to learn more about you or read more of your work where should they start well the the best place to find me online is my website which is Books.com. But I'm going to admit that uh, everybody is good at different things and bad at different things, and um, I am bad at keeping my website up to date. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing, but I do post a lot on Twitter. That's where I go when I'm avoiding writing. Um, so if you want to see up to date things, um, I'm on Twitter as Carhar. C-A-R-R-H-A-R-R. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate the time. And yeah, thanks again for your story in Secrets in Scarlet, which will be, I think it's now out. By the time this episode comes out, I think it's out. Yeah, yeah, that's, that makes sense. I think Maxine was signing copies at Arkham Knights. So if it's not out now, it's out very, very soon. Well, I know the print copies exist because I, I just got mine. I should have brought them up. 
Yeah, Jason's already showed showed them off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. On our audio format. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, listener. <laughs> cool, bro. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah. Well, they were some interviews, weren't they, Frank? <laughs> they were some interviews. Peter, what have you learned from those three interviews? Oh, you said you're teasing me, <laughs> saying you're going to ask me this. Uh, <laughs> it was it was really interesting. It, it's a bit of a departure from our, our usual style of episode. So, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll sound like the cliche, and if you if you enjoyed it or didn't enjoy it, sound off in the comments. Let mm-hmm. us know mm-hmm. what worked, what didn't work. It was really good fun speaking to the different authors, and I think even though we were coming at it from a same kind of angle, we'd read the story, let's talk a bit about the game, about the story, about Lovecraft. They all had different approaches and, and different. they were all coming at it from different directions. Mm-hmm. So hopefully mm-hmm. yeah. when all three are presented side by side, people people still get a kick out of it rather than hearing us ask the same questions three times in a row. <laughs> yeah. How about yourself? Yeah. Was there any, any, any highlights yeah, for me, I think the highlight is actually the the range there, the difference that we got three quite... I was expecting maybe that by the third it would feel like we were going through the motions a bit, but we were talking to three very different people, obviously, with their own different approaches and different backgrounds, and I really like that, and I hope that that comes through in this episode, yeah. recording this before we've stitched it all together. Yeah. So, yeah. The real highlight so, is the friends we made along the way. <laughs> exactly. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, listener. How can people get the book, Frank? Great question. It's available in the US from the 18th of October and it's coming out in the UK on the 6th of December. So for our listeners in the UK, it's coming out a little bit later on. It comes out in paperback and there's also a digital version, an EPUB as well, which I think is already out. So there's a couple of different ways to read and it seems like the perfect companion for Scarlet Key's campaign. And as Carrie said, it's going to be really interesting, those people that read the stories first and then play the campaign versus those people that play the campaign and then pick up the stories and go, ah, this fits with that. So, yeah. Yeah. We'll have to swap notes down the line. Absolutely. Yeah. And will we talk about any of these stories ever again? Mm. Yeah. Good Is question. Tease to leave people on. Yeah. <laughs> Who will know? Well, I mean, if people come back and listen to this in a few months time, then though. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So you can get in touch with us. We're drawn to the flame podcast at gmail.com. We're drawn to the flame on Facebook, Twitter, Designed by Humans, and Patreon. And thank you so much to our patrons for supporting us. And if you want to become a patron, please go take a look. Peter, how can people get in touch with you? I am Unitled Everywhere. That's U N I T L E D. I'm on Twitter and Discord and Reddit and a bunch of other places. I'm also on Instagram as the.unitled. Uh, please say hello if you see me. How about you, Frank? I'm FB on Twitter, that's E-P-H underscore B-E-E, and I'm around the place as Zooey Glass and Zozo. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you.